0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is March the 31st, 2022, one day before April Fool's Day, serious day today. Uh, One of the nice things about my job, I don't know if it's a job, uh, an activity, a hobby on Keenon, is that I get to read a lot of interesting books by very smart authors. Um, uh, Frequent viewers or listeners to the show know that uh, last week we featured uh, a book about Stuart Brand, the Silicon Valley visionary, the man who lives perpetually on the edge book uh, called uh, Whole Earth, written by John Markoff, uh, the New York Times writer. And while I was reading that, I was also simultaneously reading a book by my guest today, The Rise and Fall of the, uh, the Neoliberal Order by the Cambridge University historian Gary Gerstel. And it was almost like reading the same book, because while I was reading uh the age of uh, neoliberalism it suddenly occurred to me god brand needs to be in this book he's the quintessential neoliberal and then serendipi- serendipitously he showed up in the book so uh it's nice to know that my authors are talking to one another at least through Keenan. i'm thrilled that um gary gerstle the author of the rise and fall of the neoliberal order is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He divides his time between Cambridge, England and Cambridge, Mass. Gary, congratulations on the book. I I thought it was extremely interesting, the rise and fall of the neoliberal order, America and the world in the free market era. I think one of the surprising things about the book is that one would have expected it to be full of uh, Hayek and his fellow Mont Pelerin, friends and colleagues, the Milton Friedmans of the world. But you define neoliberalism in a much broader way to include men like Stuart Brand, who many people traditionally associate on the left. So what exactly for you does neoliberalism mean? We have a a long quote from Wikipedia here. How would you define it?
1: Well, neoliberalism is is best understood as a, a creed that wishes to unleash the full power of free market capitalism. Uh, It wants to remove restraints on capitalist activity. It wants to encourage entrepreneurialism. It wants to encourage the free movement of factors that are seen as being crucial to successful capitalist modes of production. Uh, That would include free trade, free movement of people, free movement of capital uh free movement of information and once you begin talking about those freedoms one also it also points you in the direction of of globalization uh, because neoliberalism is a is a creed that that uh preaches the importance of of globalism of companies corporations individuals crossing national boundaries pursuing their advantage pursuing efficiency uh, pursuing entrepreneurialism economic growth The promise of neoliberalism is that if this kind of situation of freedom is allowed to flourish, then uh, all boats will rise. The rest of the world will be brought closer to the West in terms of its affluence. Those people in the West will all benefit. This is a fiction, as I talk about in my book, because neoliberalism introduces really serious inequalities into the economic order and economic structure. But this is the promise of Neoliberalism and it's uh, and the promise of neoliberalism is not just about capitalism and economic growth. It also carries within it a promise of personal freedom, uh, personal emancipation, the ability and opportunity of, of people to <clears throat> pursue their dreams, um, their advantage, to reinvent themselves, to cross borders, and in, in the pursuit of things that are very meaningful to them. Uh, and so, it has a popular element to it, which studies that focus too much on Hayek and Friedman don't fully account for. Uh, Those accounts of neoliberalism focus too much on the capitalists themselves, their projects for development, their determination to use neoliberal philosophy in some respects to constrain the democratic will of the masses. I don't deny that in my book, uh, but I also want to understand why the appeal of neoliberalism has been so profound. Uh, And why it has spread so far and why for at least two decades and perhaps more, it had more authority in the world than arguably any other creed. Uh, So much so that it could pull in people from different political persuasions, including Stuart uh, Stuart Brands of the world.
0: Um, Gary, your, your, your day job is as a professor of American history. You've written a number of books on the history of America, contemporary United States. Um, it seems to me, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, that you Americanize the neoliberal order. You suggest that it could have only risen and perhaps fallen in the United States, and it has a uniquely American quality. You borrow ideas, for example, from the French historian uh, Michel Foucault to to make this argument. What is it about America, in your mind, that makes it such? Fertile soil for neoliberalism, and why should indeed we we think of the neoliberal story more in the context of America than in the Viennese school of, of Hayek and his Mont Pelerin friends?
1: Well, I think it's it's uh, it's in America that uh, neoliberalism reached its full amplitude. I wouldn't say it's confined to America. I think it went from America then to the world. I would also say that Britain also has had a, a very important role in terms of the genesis of neoliberal thinking, and here there's some quite close parallels between Ronald Reagan on the one hand and Margaret Thatcher on the other, and their successors, um, Bill Clinton in the Democratic Party and Tony Blair in the in the Labour Party, both of whom I see as being key facilitators, uh, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes wittingly, of neoliberal ideology. Uh, I had and to be
0: clear. Uh, um... Gary, you're no great fan of neoliberalism. You're not a fan of Clinton or Blair or the neoliberalists, the, the neoliberals on either the right or the left. You're pretty critical.
1: Yes, I am critical of uh, neoliberalism. And I think unregulated capitalism is is not a philosophy that can govern successfully for very long because the problems it introduces of financial speculation, bubbles, busts, and severe problems of inequality become too great uh, for the economies of the world to sustain. Uh, But uh, more than other people who study neoliberalism, I recognize that uh, at a personal level, this had appealed to a lot of individuals uh, promising uh, a kind of personal freedom Uh, That seemed to be escaping from people's grasp in circumstances of modernity, people living in heavily bureaucratized, heavily organized societies. And neoliberalism carried a a promise of personal freedom, not just to the Republican entrepreneur on the right who wanted to build his own company, but to elements of the new left who wanted to forge new identities, who wanted to cross borders, who wanted to experience different cultures, diversity, cosmopolitanism. Neoliberalism created the circumstances, the condition for many people to live in a cosmopolitan world, for many people to live across borders and to and to live in ways very different from the circumstances in which they were grown up. So this is this is part of the promise Uh, in terms of uh, why the United States, uh, I think it has something to do with um, the centrality of uh, personal and individual freedom to the promise of America, uh, which goes back to the American Revolution, which goes back to the founding of this country that privileges individuality in many cases over the public good. Uh, this was also a characteristic of what I call in the book, classical liberalism, the liberalism that triumphed in the 19th century. And uh, it there's- And you there's make, some...
0: uh Herbert Hoover in many ways, the symbol of this, the sort of the opposition, I guess, to FDR, Huber plays an quite an interesting and important role in your narrative.
1: Yes, he represents um, this 19th century liberalism, uh, the ability of people to um, be free of regulation by the state. Uh, part of the promise of America was to free Americans from the dictatorial control of George III. And so freedom in America very early on in its history came to be associated as freedom from various forms of state coercion. And there is a melding that occurs between that early uh, American philosophy and what many of the neoliberals promise. Uh, um, Milton Friedman felt a deep connection to what he called 19th century conceptions of American freedom. And so did Hayek himself, who spent a lot of years uh, in the United States. And uh, even though you can never entice him out to the West to live where Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan thought America reached its peak, even though you can never do uh, do that, he, he always had a special place in his heart for what he called Anglo-American liberty. And this was a, a liberty that sought to free the individual from the unnecessary constraints of state control. And so I think both the U.S., and the UK, uh, their conceptions of liberty historically have that dimension to them, which helps us to understand why this philosophy had its greatest success, not in Austria, Vienna, Switzerland, um, Germany, but in the United States and the UK. And let's go back
0: to Bran. What was intriguing about Bran, which I didn't actually know from Markov's book, is that as a young man, he was very much involved with the military and his pushback against military bureaucracy Defines him, I guess, in your mind, as someone living on the edge as a neoliberal. I've always thought of Brand as representing a, a West Coast kind of libertarianism. What's the difference, mm-hmm. Gary, between libertarianism, whether it's a Californian techno- libertarianism, and neoliberalism? Are they essentially the same thing? is Is libertarianism a contemporary version of neoliberalism?
1: Uh, I would say yes, that we we are. There's a linguistic difficulty and complication here. Uh, the best term for both libertarians and for neoliberals is actually the word liberal in the classical sense of the 19th century, uh, prizing individuality uh, above all else. The problem with calling someone like Brand a liberal or someone like Hayek a liberal, and, and he's, he's he wanted that label but could no longer appropriate it, is that someone who is best understood in European terms as a um, social Democrat, Franklin Roosevelt, stole the liberal label. He also stole it from Herbert Hoover, which is why one of the reasons I'm interested in Hoover's loss. He stole it from Herbert Hoover and he imbued the term liberal with social democratic meaning, which meant using the state to manage capitalism in the public interest, uh, a concern for the casualties of capitalism as much as for the entrepreneurs and the capital accumulators uh, sitting at the top. That is one of the great terminological heists, um, I think, in, in the modern world. And that today is still the meaning of liberalism. So if you talk about a liberal in America, you're talking about someone who is a descendant of Franklin Roosevelt, who believes in Keynesianism, who believes in a strong state. But, but, uh, Gary,
0: going back to classical liberalism in the 19th century, if you take Mill, for example, weren't most classical Liberals in the nineteenth century ambivalent about the state. They recognised there may need to be some role that they didn't come out either aggressively for or against the state, and this only became quote unquote neoliberal or libertarian in the twentieth century.
1: I think a lot of them were were ambivalent about the state, and uh, and and they didn't know quite. What to do with the state? Because they they certainly wanted to free society from the heavy hand of the 18th century state, which was monarchical, aristocratic, mercantilist uh, kings and queens producing wealth for themselves and their retinues, without sufficient concern with for the economic efficiency of the of the whole economic order. And so figures like Adam Smith the Scottish philosopher of the 18th century, uh, certainly wanted to free economic activity from all these constraints which he associated with government. But they also knew that markets do not spring naturally from the ground. It's not as though it rains and a market will appear, that markets have to be organized, that they have to be governed by laws, that there have to be contracts that are honored, that there have to be enforcement mechanisms for people who break their contracts. So even in the in the 19th century, liberals understand the need that they need the law and they need a state to create a society of free markets. They need to order markets so that markets can be free. It's a paradoxical element of liberalism. And and this also carries over into neoliberalism. The difference being that neoliberals feel that much more work is necessary now on the part of the state to organize markets than had been the case in the 19th century. I'm not sure that's in fact the case. To return to the question of libertarian, libertarians come after uh, liberalism. Liberalism has been taken by the Democrats and by the social Democrats. So they are looking for new words to describe who they are. Libertarian is one uh, and neoliberal is another. Both both terms are, are, um, I think both terms are not adequate and as robust as the term liberal but they had no choice but to settle on uh, second-class terms to describe their philosophy. Uh, And Stuart Brand, uh, I would call him a libertarian. I think he was also at times a new leftist. Uh, I'm interested not simply on on formal titles and uh, formal names for ideologies. I'm interested in what is the correspondence between what people say their beliefs are and these philosophies. And if you look at Stuart Brand he fits for me a, a libertarian uh, mold, a desire to uh, free the human spirit from so much control, so much bureaucracy, so much over organization. Uh, this uh, certainly in the 1960s and 70s was a, a, a guiding principle of his life, and you saw it when he was carrying on with the merry pranksters of the. Yeah, and uh, I, and I think
0: the, your definition, your broader definition of neoliberalism makes more sense of Silicon Valley, not just of Brand, but of Steve Jobs, of Steve Wozniak, even of more contemporary figures like Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, people f- struggle to put technology into a political box, but I think your, your definition does a pretty good job. We are speaking with Gary Gerstle, the author of a really uh, interesting new history, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, America and the World in the Free Market Era, I'm going to take a break now, Gary, and then after the break, I want to talk about the history of this, both the rise and the fall and what the future of the world will be, perhaps in in a post neoliberal age. So we'll be back with Gary Gerstle, the author of The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lit Hub is. And on their Lit Hub Live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page so whatever your preference whatever your taste whether it's video or audio or text there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show now back to Keenan. we're back with gary gerstle the author of the rise and fall of the neoliberal order Um, about 30 years ago gary uh, you wrote another book, or you co-wrote a book, The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order, 1930 to 1980. Is this the up and down escalator of uh, of the world system, just as the New Deal order collapsed so we have the rise of neoliberalism? Are the two the yin and the yang of, of the 20th century?
1: Well, uh, that seems to be how, how I've written uh, at least uh, two-thirds of the three-quarters of the 20th century. This was not a grand plan when I uh, published The Rise and Fall of the New Deal Order in 1989, uh, but I think I always wanted to explore the possibility that there may have been a political order that succeeded the New Deal Order, and this this book is, is an effort to chart that story. Uh, each order lasts for about uh, 40 years. It goes through a period of rise and fall. I do not want to suggest that politics is always about 40 year long orders. I don't know what's coming next, whether we'll be in an extended period of disorder or whether a new political order is rising around us as we speak, both are possibilities. I think what my concept of political order order underscores is that some uh, political processes cannot be understood in two, four or six year election cycles. There are longer stretches of politics when certain ideas, certain constituencies, certain parties dominate for long periods of time, even when they're out of office. And my concept of political order and my concept of neoliberal order and New Deal order is meant to help us to understand those longer waves of politics and why one collapses. And culture,
0: Gary. um... One of the things that occurs to me we did a show uh, earlier this week uh with daniel horowitz who's a cultural historian at smith college um he wrote an interesting book about what shark tanks as t- shark tank tells us about the what i call the unreality of life in america this neoliberal order is extensive it, it, it extends into television into culture into technology into the core of our way of life of how we think of ourselves of the cult of innovation is that fair
1: yes uh, it's it's not just about politics uh, or it's about the way in which ideas that come out of politics uh, become part of the cultural realm in a very powerful way and part of this has to do with what we might call le- le- neoliberal modes of reason that shape the way in which people um, think of themselves Uh, that's a very important part of the culture i also argue in the book that uh, every political order in order to be successful requires a moral code and by which i mean uh, a message about how to live the good life and the neoliberal order in my telling has two such codes meant for very different audiences very different from each other but they uh, they coalesce uh, very powerfully. One is favored by the Republicans that in order to succeed in an age of market freedom, you have to be disciplined. You need strong patriarchal, patriarchal fathers in charge of family. You, th- you need women in traditional roles. You need children growing up in two parent families that only these circumstances can um, provide the discipline and the virtue necessary to succeed at the highest levels in a free market society. And for Democrats and liberals and even even radicals, the neoliberal order sells a vision of the good life based on cosmopolitanism, diversity, crossing borders, being able to meet people from all walks of life. Right. It's, it's Ralph building. Nader. I
0: did an interview with Ralph Nader uh, for my "How to Fix Democracy" movie. He, you argue with men like Stuart Brand, e- exemplifies that the, the neoliberalism, the suspicious of the suspicion of the state the uh contempt for all forms of regulation so i think your argument is a really interesting one in that sense
1: well i i wouldn't uh put ralph nader in the camp of a cultural radical (laughs) i don't think he fits that box but you're absolutely right i he is another person on the left who i see feeding the neoliberal stream because he is upset about concentrated corporate power to be sure but he sees government as being in cahoots more often than not with private corporate power. And in order to blow up corporate power, he needs to blow up government power as well. He wants to make the consumer sovereign. He wants to make the consumer free. So once again, we see a message of freedom uh, coming out of those who are involved in building in one form or another the neoliberal order. And Ralph Nader is very much a part of that. I expect that to be a somewhat controversial point among people reading yeah, the book. Sure. I, I don't think days,
0: but uh, it's good to aggravate. I like Ralph Nader. but It's good to aggravate him. I think your, your critique is a really important one. You make, uh, for example, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. You make this piece uh, of this new world important too. As everything gets deregulated, you seem to suggest, whether it's prisons or schools or the or the military, um, we have more and more injustice. Is that really what you're trying to argue? I think
1: it does, as you deregulate everything, uh, you do have much more injustice, um, tremendous amount of economic injustice, tremendous gap between the rich and the poor more than that uh, neoliberal ideology uh, does not look kindly on uh, supports government supports of a a welfare variety for those who are deemed to be casualties of the economic system those who are not finding jobs or can't find work and can't support themselves and if you're not going to support these people and help them out with education if you're not going to help them out with uh, payments of, of some sort to tide them over then uh, the, you risk them entering a life of crime, of drugs, of looking for illicit ways to make ends meet if they can't do it in a, in a legal way. And so across the decades in which the neoliberal order is rising, urban crime is ri- rising, unemployment is rising in urban areas to stratospheric levels, especially among minority Black youth. And that begins the discussion of jailing and mass incarceration, which is what Michelle Alexander talks about and one has to if one is to write a book as I do about the triumph of market freedom how does one deal with the eruption of mass incarceration which is of course a mass condition of unfreedom in these circumstances and we've done a
0: number of shows um, Gary about the deregulation of prisons the deregulation of health care of mental institution of mental uh, um, uh, 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 mentally ill patients it's all bound up in the same narrative. No one's actually writing it, but the consequences are pretty clear, aren't they?
1: Yes. Uh, the deregulatory impulse travels across the entire society. And when neoliberalism was at the height of its authority and its hegemony uh Deregulation almost achieved a kind of uh, sacred character. It was like a catechism. It was like something you heard in church. It was something that could not be challenged.
0: But it's still religious. We did a show with the Berkeley sociologist um, Caroline Chen on how work has become religion in Silicon Valley. My, my, uh, My reservation is about the rise and fall. I don't see that much evidence of of the fall of 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 neoliberalism. You have an interesting take, it seems, on Trump. Uh, the 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 standard radical take on Trump is he's just the kind of horrible logical conclusion of neoliberalism by people like Sarah Kenzio, who's appeared on the show, uh, Jonathan Carl as well. But my take from you, or maybe correct me if I'm wrong, is you don't really see. Trump as a symptom of the rise of neoliberalism, perhaps more in terms of a crisis or the fall of neoliberalism? Is that fair?
1: It is fair. Um, I think it, it, the, uh, the two dominant figures in the United States of the second decade of the 21st century, one was Donald Trump and the other was Bernie Sanders, uh, a man on the ethno-nationalist right versus a socialist on the left. These men are not new men. You know, they're we all know them to be old. Uh, in their in their 70s, they've been around for a long time. They've had long careers. In the 1990s, they were utterly inconsequential as political figures in American life. No one took them seriously. Trump was always trying to get people to take him seriously, but no one took him seriously as a political figure. That he can vault himself to the center of um, American politics as Sanders was able to do signifies that the liberal order was beginning to come apart now many people think that trump is uh, simply a buffoon even if a talented buffoon and a a dangerous man i don't disagree with those judgments but he has some beliefs that run deeply counter to neoliberalism Uh, he was never a believer in free markets he never believed that markets could be perfected He, he thought markets were were always being arranged uh, by fixers uh, like himself, he did not believe in the free movement of goods. He did not believe in a globalized economy. He did not believe in the free movement of people. Uh, he was not committed really to the free movement of, of of information. The freedoms that were seen as being the hallmarks of the neoliberal era are not things that he um, supported. He was interested in building walls, and someone who's a, a true neoliberal is not primarily about building walls. They're about Tearing walls down, and so I think Trump has done has done, and on the right and Sanders on the left has have done a lot to introduce ideas into politics that were forbidden or had no chance of success or influence when the neoliberal order was riding high.
0: So, what about the future? Um, if if indeed neoliberalism is in crisis, which I'm not convinced, but that there, there has to be some sort of future, Gary, um, for progressives. I mean. I had uh, your friend, um, Michael Kazin, on the show recently. I think you referred to him in the beginning of your book. He's a friend of yours. I think he helped with the editing of your book. What it took to win, A History of the Democratic Party. My reading of Kazin is that he thinks we can return to the New Deal order. I'm guessing you don't think that. I'm guessing that you think that progressives need to rethink the 21st century, perhaps Along David Graeber's alternative an, uh, anthropologies, which he lays out in his new history, *The Dawn of Everything: A New History of Humanity*, Graeber is no longer around. Can we go back to the New Deal, Gary, or do we have to move forward as progressives?
1: Well, uh, one can certainly, as a progressive, if one is if wants if one wants to rebuild a progressive future, then one can do worse than. Study a time when progressivism was so successful in America, and that brings one back to the New Deal. So I think the New Deal should be studied. Uh, I think, but in political who...
0: terms, in terms of winning, rather than in ideological terms.
1: Well, uh, there um, there is a majority that votes progressive. I think Biden um, is ha, has tried to put together a progressive coalition, and he welcomed the left into the Democratic Party. Um, more robustly than has occurred with any Democratic president, I would say, of the last 30 or 40 years. Bernie Sanders is a new dealer. He, he, As you suggest, he's old, and he doesn't seem
0: to have had a new idea for about 100 years, for better or worse. I mean, (laughs) do you think that... I mean, is there a progressive... Is there a kernel of progressivism, a kind of... uh, An epochal notion, say, bound up in, in, in Graeber's critique of the state? Because in, in some ways, Graeber might be thought of as a neoliberal.
1: Well, I don't. I, 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 David Graeber has been enormously influential and provocative as a thinker, and I'm, I'm, I'm very saddened that we've lost him as a voice before our time, his time. And I think of, of all the work of his that we're gonna be deprived of because of his early and untimely death. Uh, but as much as I admire um, anarchism, I don't think that the world can really exist without uh, centralized states. And that if there's gonna be a progressivism that recovers, it's gonna to have to do it through a state, uh, not around it. Now, there may be imaginative ways of reconstructing state power. so. Regions, city-states, other forms of of state, concentrated state power begin to emerge. But I don't think that a progressive order can be reconstructed in the terms that anarchists favor. Uh, what I would say in Biden's defense uh, is that I think he recognizes that we in the world are at an inflection point in history now, that the neoliberal order has run out of steam, that something else is going to replace it. We can glimpse pretty clearly what the right wing version of this is. It's it's Trump, it's authoritarianism, and this is not just an American phenomenon. These are ethno-nationalist populist uh, leaders who are very critical of democracy, democracy, think democracy is slow ineffective, and they celebrate the cult of the strong leader, and they identify themselves with the state and with peoplehood. And if they are to be successful and they recognize themselves in each other, and of course Putin is one of the people in their ranks, then democracy itself is gonna be extinguished for a long period of time. We can see and glimpse that future. And those who are our progressives have to fight against that future. Uh, and I think Biden, to his credit, is someone who grasps the enormity of this moment as an inflection point. And uh, that is why I think in his first year, he tried to, so hard to infuse democratic politics with a new energy, bring the left back in, build new coalitions of the sort that had not been part of the Democratic Party, for some time before. He's not going to be successful in the short term, but there's no alternative uh, except for those on the left uh, to keep broadcasting their message and organizing so that their vision of the future will triumph over the authoritarian one.
0: But you're still not laying that future out, Gary. It's just the opposite of the authoritarian one. You quote in your book, Jamie Suskind, an interesting writer, he's been on the show, wrote a book called future politics, and uh, I'm quoting uh, from the book, he said, politics in the 20th century was dominated by a single question. How much of our collective life should be determined by the state and what should be left to the market and civil society? Uh, Now the debate is different. To what extent should our lives be directed and controlled by powerful digital systems and on what terms? How much of our post-neoliberal order from both a progressive and a conservative or reactionary point of view, how much is it gonna be determined by technology, by blockchain, by openness, by transparency, by the new monopolies of Silicon Valley?
1: A great deal. I mean, that's that's the world in which we've lived. Uh, and, uh, uh, and there's also no doubt that uh, these Silicon Valley entities are so extraordinarily powerful now and their power extends beyond nation's borders and beyond nation states that they turn out to be extraordinarily difficult uh, to get under control and make them submit to some kind of democratic sovereignty. Uh, the technology is with us uh, and that is not going away and it's going to continue develop to develop in all kinds of ways. I think the key question for those people who see themselves as Democrats, and here I mean Democrats with a small d, those who value democracy and those who think that the people should be sovereign, they, meaning we, are going to have to find some way of putting these enormous private entities under some kind of public democratic supervision. We're going to have to develop mechanisms of rule that require enormously private. Um, Uh, powerful corporate entities that flourished in the neoliberal age to rein in their power and to make sure that technology is being used to serve the people and not to suppress or trap them in circumstances and ways of living that are not of their own choosing. and In that way, uh, drawing lessons from the past uh, turns out to be extremely important. America itself has a st- very strong tradition of anti-monopoly, a, a very strong tradition that that insists that private concentrations of wealth and power cannot be tolerated in a society where people aspire to freedom. And in the past, America has developed very powerful mechanisms for bringing these private monopolies right. under the, public the trust control. Busters.
0: We've done a number of shows on that. We had Barry Lynn, for example, one of the more influential thinkers on how neoliberalism created a new age of monopolies, particularly in terms of tech. So do you think, Gary, then, you're a historian, can we go back to that moment when the New Deal was born with trust busters, with a, a, a rebuilt state? Or does this need to be more global? Could it be bound up in cryptocurrency, in blockchain, in other technologies that escape the control of the nation state
1: well the the i don't want to dichotomize going backwards or moving forwards i think we we need to do both there are lessons from the past about how people in a democracy gain control over very large private entities uh, but you're right in in your insistence on the globalized nature of these processes and the most effective instruments of democratic control in the past have been national legislatures like congress like Parliament in the UK, like the Bundestag in Germany, like the National Assembly in France. And one of the challenges for today, and this is part of the climate challenge too, is that the problems transcend national borders and and they transcend the limits of legislative power. And so the question becomes, uh, where does the power to rein in these corporations, how do we locate this in an international arena where national legislatures can Cannot yet do can no can no longer do what they once did. They they can control national territory, they cannot control international territory. One thing for certain, it's not going to be the United Nations, and All I right. think one of the ch- one of the challenges for those of us looking into the future is to identify what are the means of international democratic governance. And the United Nations is not going to work. I don't think David Graber's ideas are going to work. Uh, Congress can't extend its rule throughout the whole world. And if it does, it will be, it will be imperialistic rather than democratic. It's not going to be crypto chains and currency. Uh, This is, I would say, the biggest question of, of our time, how to establish democratic forms of control and sovereignty that allow people internationally to rule beyond the borders of the nations in which they live.
0: It's a great question a great question to end on. Perhaps it will be the subject of another book, Gary, Uh, but your new book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. It's out right now. You can order it. Uh, America and the World in the Free Market Era does as good a job, I think, as any book recently to tie all these complicated strands of neoliberalism together and make it a coherent narrative. I think, Gary, you do a particularly good job explaining that it's not just a conservative movement it's also a liberal quote unquote movement as well so congratulations on the book what else should people be reading uh, on the last day of march in 2022 gary in addition to your new book
1: well i can only say what i've been reading uh one of the books I've been reading is Fintan O'Toole's memoir of growing up in Ireland. Uh, we don't know ourselves a personal history of
0: yeah. Someone else was recommending Ireland. me to get him. I need to get him on the show. Do you know him?
1: You need to get him. You, you need to get him on the show. Absolutely. Uh, it's a quite a beautiful memoir, but also quite a serious history of Ireland's remarkable odyssey over the last uh, fifty years and the kinds of Social and cultural transformations that have been completely and unexpectedly released there. Um, I'm reading uh, Catherine Belton's "Putin's People." Yeah, um, like a lot of your listeners, Putin's on my mind and yeah. trying to come to terms with how London became a haven for all the oligarchs and all the protections. Yeah, Ka- Catherine there.
0: was on the show last year, and actually, her definition of KGB capitalism is a, is perhaps the the purest form of neoliberal capitalism, isn't it?
1: It might well be, yes. Yes, and then I'm I'm reading Pankaj Mishra's new novel, um, Run and Hide, which is a story of uh, three Indian young people taken from poor circumstances, rising to the top of the meritocracy that's been available in India. The world is their stage, and then the crisis overwhelms them over the present and future of India and their role in it. So these are among the books that I am reading right now and finding really quite interesting.
0: Good stuff, Gary Gerstle, the author of The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Gary, who's running the world these days on the 31st of (laughs) March, 2022? Who's in charge?
1: Well, if this were April 1st, I would say I am. (laughs) And uh, that's that's a secret sauce that people have been missing. America's still got the most powerful economic machine and military in the world, but I think this recent crisis in Ukraine tells me that no one is running the world right right now. It's not Putin either, that we live in a condition of uh, serious disorder. And it's not just the US trying to find its way to a new political order, it's the world moving out of a Pax Americana, an American peace that dominated uh, the United States and the world from World War II to, to the early years of this century into something else, a, a world order that's gotta be dominated, I don't think by one country as was the case with America or before that Britain, but it's gotta be dominated by um, four blocks perhaps or four powerful countries more like the 19th century before the period of British hegemony. Uh, whenever the world is moving from one politi- from one world order to another, it's a dangerous time. Because people don't know their limits, and and they don't know their the countries don't know their relationship to each other, they test each other, they they make mistakes, they overstep, uh, they fail to respond. This is the drama through which we're living through at this moment in in Ukraine, and it shows uh, that this war has broken out in the way that it has, demonstrates that we are in a moment of disorder, moving towards some kind of new world order whose contours have not yet come into sharp relief.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much.